and welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name is Jason Barnard, and that was Manfred Mann's Earth Band, Blinded by the Light from 1976. And that's because I've got then Manfred Mann's singer, frontman, guitarist, Chris Thompson here to talk about his fantastic career, time in the Earth Band, but um, he's been in other groups, a fantastic songwriter in his own right. And uh, he's got a very successful solo career. A huge welcome, Chris. Well, thank you very much, Jason. I'm happy to be here. You've got such such an interesting story. Like many musical artists in Australia, as well as New Zealand, you travelled over to uh, England in, was it the early 70s? Yeah, early 70s, yeah. Yeah. Well, we. I was born in England. Oh, were you? But my, yeah, I was born in England, but my father immigrated what was called the 10 bob ticket he was a teacher and we got on a boat and went for six weeks across the ocean to new zealand you know it's a lovely country yeah and so you know i had to well i came back on a plane well actually i came back on a boat because he died very soon after we'd gone to new zealand so we came back on another boat and hated it so went back again on another boat and um yeah so but i did i i came back to England, yeah, early 70s, 73, I think. Was the idea to just establish yourself on the music scene or was it not as... No, absolutely. It was my, my intention to, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know whether you know of a band called The Peddlers. You probably wouldn't know. Yes, yes, I've got Peddlers. Oh, okay. In- well, Trevor Morace, the drummer, he kind of left The Peddlers in New Zealand when I was playing in I met him there and we needed a drummer. So he played with us for about six months and then he went back to England and he sent me a telegram saying, I've got a gig for you. You, you know, you've got to come. So I packed up everything, caught a plane and flew to England and he was supposed to meet me at the airport, but he was doing something else. Anyway, I went to his house and when I saw him in the morning, I said, okay, Trev, what's this gig? Because a gig to me was seven nights a week in a yeah. in a nightclub. That's what I'd been doing for all my, you know, my professional career was five to seven nights playing in a nightclub pretty much. So anyway, Trevor said, well, no, I just got a gig. It's one gig in, <laughs> in, in, in a university up the road, but we'll find something, don't worry. But I was very, uh, you know, Trevor was great to me and he looked after me and, um, yeah, it got me. I don't know whether I would have come back if it hadn't been for him. So, yeah, I have to thank him for that very much. Was it a two or three years before you joined the Manfred Mann's Earth Band then? Well, no, I actually joined November 1974 because they had a tour of America. Mick Rogers had left and they had a tour of America to support some Nightingales and Bombers. And so they needed a singer to do that. So I did that. That was the first thing that I did. They often say about seeing an ad in the Melody Maker or something, or was it? I saw an ad in the Melody Maker, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it said, you know, band with record label, need singer, guitar player, no time wasters. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. So I came, went back and forth with Manfred until I said, you know, well, have I got the gig or what? And uh, he said, yeah, okay, then. So, you know, we rehearsed when on tour in America, which was for me amazing because I was, I grew up in Hamilton, which is, I think, probably, I don't know, 50,000 people perhaps at that point in time. And so for me to suddenly, I, I did work in Auckland, of course, as well. Mm. But um, for me, suddenly to be in America playing was like a dream come true, really. So, yeah, I mean, there were live gigs that, that would have been a fair population of Hamilton alone. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Some of the big gigs, Philadelphia Spectrum, 27,000 people inside. I think that was my fourth concert with Manfred Man's Earth Band. Yeah, pretty amazing, really, because we'd been playing in small clubs just to warm up. And uh, we started with a song called Waiter, There's a Yawn in Your Ear, which is from the, um, uh, yeah, from Roaring Silence. And so we started with that, you know, which is like a hi-hat. And we were on a big stage and Manfred started stamping his foot on the his riser, making more noise than the hi-hat. So Chris Slade shouted at me, hold his foot down so he's not making any noise. <laughs> so I had to kind of get Manfred to stop stamping his foot in the Philadelphia spectrum. It was pretty funny. And so we opened the podcast with Blinded by the Light, which is uh, one of the first big hits that you were on. What was it like to record with uh, Manfred and, and the crew? Um, well, Manfred was always difficult to record with because he was never satisfied with anything, which in some ways is a really good thing. Mm. But well, we just re we, I think we rehearsed for three months with four songs for Roaring Silence. And then we got into the studio Monday after three months of going over and over the songs, and Manfred just wanted to change everything. He didn't like anything. So, you know, we ended up working for three months in the studio. I mean, it was very, very difficult. It was. But um, Chris Slade and Colin Patton had worked with him before a lot. So, you know, it, it was okay. It was an interesting experience for me, but um, I wouldn't say it was easy. But it paid off hitting Blinded by the Light was a US number one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Number one. It was absolutely fantastic. For a boy from Hamilton, it was, like I said, a dream come true, all of it, really. So, yeah, no, it was great. And and very difficult to follow up. <laughs> you know, once you've got a hit like that, it's 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 difficult. How were the songs chosen to, to record for the albums or, or as, as singles? Well, when I joined, when I started working with Maverick, he had like a list of three or four songs or actually had a big list of songs that he wanted to work with. Blinded was definitely one. I mean, he pretty much chose the songs. He chose them and and um, we worked on them, really. That, that was pretty much the way it was. And, you know, he was, like I said, he was never satisfied. He worked and worked and worked until he was satisfied. But with Blinded, it was strange because we had these four songs and we wanted to play them to Jerry Braun from Bronze Records, who we were signed to. And he came and he hated everything. No. He hated it. And we thought Blinded was a we thought Blinded was a hit. So for the record company come down and say, rubbish, don't like any of it. That forced our hand, really. And we had a an engineer called Laurie Latham who kind of searched through some of Manfred's playing and found this thing that became, you know, the, the introduction to he found that because Manfred was playing something and he put that at the front of the song. Wow. And that just changed everything pretty much. It, it, you know, from then on, you know, that song was the hit, luckily. And the hits kept coming in that period, like Dave is on the road again. And yeah, I don't know if it was that attention to detail in the studio or, or re rehearsals, but so much of that material, even the, the songs that, that had been sort of written by other artists, there was a way that you and the band, Man Manfred, could just put some polish on them and turn them into hits, but not in a poppy way. It, it was kind of authentic rock, but they, was. they were just great for the, the radio. Yeah, well, it was hard work, really. We, we worked a lot. Manfred worked an awful lot on those songs, and we worked as a band, we worked on them. 
and you know we were lucky we were lucky that the radio played them it was you know we were lucky and um, i mean i think you know when i listen to it now i think you can understand why the radio played them because it was different it wasn't your run of the mill rock pop kind of songs and they had something you know and i'd like to think that my voice had something to do with it that made it kind of recognizable i guess Dave is on the road again Wearing different clothes again Dave is turning handouts down To keep his pockets clean All his goods are sold again His worth is good as gold again Says if you see Jean now ask her please you get to work with Jeff Wayne then? Well, I was asked by 
Gary Osborne, who wrote a lot of the, the lyrics on the War of the Worlds, he asked me if I'd come in and do an advertisement for Jeff, Jeff Wayne's music company. They did adverts. And so um, I did. I went in and did an advertisement. I think the first one I did was Chesterfield cigarettes. <laughs> the great American taste, you know. <laughs> yeah, so I did that. And Jeff was pretty happy with that. But he had Thunderchild was being sung by who else was in the Moody Blues? Not Justin. He sang Forever Autumn. John Lodge. Yeah. He sang the original. And Jeff, he was really particular about what he wanted from the songs. And um, Gary said, why don't you try Chris Thompson? So I went in, spent um, a day working on the song. He was a very hard taskmaster, Jeff. Wonderful. Wonderful producer, really lovely guy, very nice to work with, but he worked me very, very hard for a day. We got this vocal happening, and Jeff said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm not doing anything. He said, well, can you come in and double track it? <laughs> and I don't know whether you know Thunderchild, but it's got some very different time signatures, not time signatures, but the way the vocal worked. Yeah. You know, and we spent a lot of time trying to get it feel like a you know, feel like a boat on the ocean and a bit of movement and everything. And to double track, it was a complete nightmare. It took me two days to do that. <laughs> it said that there was quite a time lapse between when some of the vocalists worked on that album to the release. Was that the same case with you? Yeah, yeah, it was. And I think that's because Jeff changed record companies in the middle, I think. And, um, you know, again, he was very finickety about everything to do with the album and he wanted it to be dead right and so took a while to get it. I can't even remember when it came out. Was it 79 or something like that? Yeah, 78. It picked up 79 and even, yeah. even into 80. And that links into what I was saying. Was, I guess it's impossible to know where something will end up, but that album is a, a classic, iconic album now. And I assume it was just hard when you're just there for a few days in the studio, it's hard to know that it will be held at those lofty heights. Or did you know that it was really good stuff? Well, I thought, well, Forever Autumn, he played me that. And I thought Thunderchild, I thought the two of them were really good songs, very interesting. But I didn't know anything about the narration, mm. the Richard Burton narration. I didn't know anything about that. Or that, um, what's his name from Thin Lizzy? Oh, Phil Linnett. Yeah, Phil Linnett. I didn't know that he had done it. And um, I didn't really know anything else. So I just thought what I, you know, what I was involved in was something very interesting and unusual. And working with Jeff was such an experience. So, no, I didn't know, really, no. the silhouette of a fighting machine. Another came, and another, striding over hills and trees, plunging far out to sea and blocking the exit of the steamer. Between them lay the silent, grey, ironclad Thunder Child. Slowly it moved toward shore, then with a deafening roar and whoosh of spray, it swung about and drove at full speed towards the waiting Martian. There were ships of shapes and sizes Scattered out along the bay 
And I thought I heard her calling As the steamer pulled away The invaders must have seen them As across the coast they filed Standing from between Blazing as she came Brought a mighty vessel warlord Crashing down in sheets of flame Sensing victory was nearing Thinking fortune must have smiled People started cheering Come on, thunder, child Come on, thunder, child released their black smoke, but the ship sped on, cutting down one of the tripod figures. Instantly, the others raised their heat rays and melted the Thunder Child's valiant heart. following cylinder and no one and nothing was left now to fight them the earth belonged to the martians and so we we move on back to manfred band's earth band and another big hit you angel you a huge success in in germany and yeah. europe as well and maybe more so than certainly the UK to a certain extent, there was something about France, Germany, Benelux, et cetera, yeah, that has yeah. taken 
you as well as, as, as the Earth Band really to their hearts. Yeah. Well, I think that that was the most successful album in Germany and in Europe, really. And the, I know the tour that accompanied that was the most successful tour we ever had, really. It was um, phenomenal, really. I think that year we got voted best live act, I think. That was the year we got voted that in Germany. Over Pink Floyd or whoever else was playing. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, we, we were lucky that it connected. I don't think, I think you're right, I don't think it connected as much in England. I can't, I can't remember. But, um, yeah, we were being very successful. It didn't connect in America at all because it was kind of a concepty record. But, the, you know, but the German record-buying public loved it, and it was a fantastic time. The publicity for that album, there was kind of something in that publicity that it would be your last album with the group. Was it a case of uh, you having to give Manfred quite a bit of notice? Well, the thing was that he took so long to make records and it became very difficult, especially with Angel Station. You know, it was kind of out of my hands, whereas the two albums before that, you know, we did it as a band. And then Chris Slade and Colin left and replaced with various people for various different tracks and I had a producer. And I just felt I wanted to do something else. So, uh, yeah, I did give him notice, of course. He put it on the album. I don't know why he did that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why he did that, but he did. And, um, of course, it wasn't my last record with Man From Man's Earth Band because he, no. he kept asking me back <laughs> to continue working together, which is, I mean, Manfred and I, were, you know, we still are good friends, really. We don't see each other much, but... Um, it was nothing to do with, oh, I can't stand you, I'm going to leave. It was nothing to do with that. It was just me wanting to do, you know, something else, starting to write songs. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to give America another shot. And that was it, really. Selfish, I guess. <laughs>
So let's talk about some of your solo work and straight off the bat, really, in terms of, you know, that period leaving the Earth Band, a big song, If You Remember Me. How did you come to know of that song and and the involvement with the the film, which was The Champ, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, The Champ, yeah. Well, that was in the night night era with the band called Night. And we were being produced by Richard Perry and working and living in Los Angeles. And um, Richard just called me up and said, can you come into the studio? I want you to meet the writer. Because the, the lyricist was Carol Bayosega and it, Marvin Hamlish. Oh. And he said, I want you to come and meet Marvin Hamlish. He's got a song that I think you should sing. So and Marvin came in, sat at the piano, taught me the melody and everything. And I did a very rough demo of the song, just piano and voice. And... They took that to the the film company, and the film company loved it, and they wanted to they wanted me to sing it and do uh, Richard to do a production, which we did, and they loved it, and they tempted in the they put it in the film at the end. It was in the end, and I went back to England to go on a Man from Mars Earth Band tour. I can't remember which one it was, but um, when I was halfway through the tour. I think we were we were in coming close to being in France, I think. And Richard called me and said, oh, Chris, you have to come to New York because we have to do your vocal again. And I, I said, why do we have to do the vocal again? It was a really good vocal. Yeah, yeah, it was a really good vocal, but the record company wanted you to do it again. I mean, the film company. Mm. I said, oh, okay. So I had to get a Concorde on my day off to uh, from Paris to New York. And I was supposed to get a night's sleep and then get up in the morning and do it. But Richard got me to go down the studio straight after a, a Concorde flight and went to the studio. And that was when I heard the story that Richard had decided to replace my vocal with Michael McDonald oh. because Michael was being very successful at the time and he thought it would be better for the movie, but he didn't ask the record company. So he then went down and surprised them and played it. And they went, no, we have to have Chris Thompson. So to cut a long story short, I had to redo that vocal again and then fly back to finish my... But I did get to ride on the Concorde, though. <laughs> seat seat 1A. Brilliant. Wow. So that's how it happened, really. When you remember me Remember me I hope you see It's not the way I want it to be Or I'd be with you now But wherever you go My love goes with you Keep on smiling Shining, even though you know you want to cry, I tried to love you, but looking in my eyes, you saw promises and lies too many times when. It's not the way I want it to be 
You mentioned that if you remember me was in that the period when you know you were in in night and so mm. tell us about that group and how it came about well night came from a bunch of us playing in a pub called the bridge house in canning town where we used to go and play thursdays wednesdays and thursdays and it was just myself stevie langer a couple of friends of mine from new zealand and billy christian the bass player who stayed in the band and we were heard by a guy called Robert Raymond, who is an Australian friend of Billy's, actually. And he he said, I'm going to go to America and get you a deal. So he did and got the deal with Richard Perry. And um, we had to get a drummer and a keyboard player and go to America and start working with Richard. I think it was one of the worst times in my life that was because the band spent far too much money making a record that only had one kind of hit on it, Hot Summer Nights, but it, but it was a radio hit. Yeah. And we got to tour with the Doobie Brothers for nine months opening up for them. But it was really difficult because Richard just wanted us to do other people's songs. He didn't want to listen to anything that the band was doing. So every day we had to go in and play these different songs and we had people coming in and saying, yeah, that'll be a hit and that'll be a hit. But we heard Dr. Doctor that eventually ended up with Robert. And we thought Hot Summer Nights was good. We thought we should do Dr. Doctor, but Richard didn't like that. So it was a very, 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 very difficult period, I have to say. You know, we were living there. We were kind of estranged from families. And and we just, you know, it was just we didn't know enough about what we were doing with Richard. And he really didn't know what to do with the band. Two vocalists. We had, you know, Stevie's great singer mm. and myself, but we didn't do any kind of really duet songs which what the band playing at the bridge house used to do but they were covers so that was the strength of the band was two singers singing you know together but we never found the songs to do it you know and in the end Richard put out the record and um, like I said Hot Summer Nights was I think it got into the top 20 in America on American radio and it was you know people loved it it was it was a real radio hit in the summer and we got to tour with the Doobies and it was it was fantastic. But you know, like I said, the band spent far too much money. And in those days, you could spend far too much money because of the way things worked in, in America, in Los Angeles. It was just, it was crazy. But um, it was a difficult time for me because it wasn't what I wanted it to be. And I didn't have any control over what we were doing because Richard's a very, you know, he's a very powerful man. And uh, yeah, he took over it really. There was very little of my stuff on the on the night record. 
I can't even remember what we had. Party shuffle, I think, and something else. So after that period, you did a solo album. Was it Out of the Night? Yeah, that was pretty terrible as well, I think. I was kind of struggling to learn to be a songwriter. And it's a very difficult um, process, songwriting. You know, it takes hours and hours and and lots of hard work. And, and, you know, you kind of learn it as you go along. And I was able to write with some people. I learned a few things, but I wasn't good enough for writing on that record really mm. have to be honest why not it was it was so in its time what we thought 
what we thought would be successful on the radio in England. And, you know, when you're writing for what you think is going to be successful, by the time the record comes out, music has changed. And, you know, that's what happened with that record. Yeah, it was kind of behind its time and didn't get played on the radio. So you got the call from Manfred? To go back. Yeah. Yeah, well, they got a... Virgin Records approached him to do a record, and but they he had to have me as the singer. That was the oh, you know that was the the deal breaker, I guess you could say. So I wasn't really doing anything else that was you know that I felt good about. So I said yes. But before that, I think was somewhere in Africa, which I think is one of the best Man from Man's Earthbound albums. Yeah, I think that's Manfred was way ahead of his time with somewhere in Africa. It was really really good. And, um, yeah, it was from his heart, I think, because he, you know, he grew up in South Africa. And I think there's some great bits and pieces. And that was a nice tour as well. That was with Mick Rogers was back in the band. And mm. it was a nice, um, very nice tour. And in that period, one of the big hits was uh, Runner. Runner, yeah. Uh, that was the age of MTV as well. And, and um, that was a, a yeah. video, and especially given the, the backstory behind that song that really connected with a lot of people. Yeah. I actually didn't know that uh, when I when I read your um, mm. summary of what we're going to talk about. It struck me maybe somebody told us, but I did not know that he wrote it for that particular yeah. thing. Nobody, to, Manfred, didn't tell us. And that song was found by Clive Davis. Oh, and Clive wanted Manfred to do it, and the album that was on Virgin in in England became an album on Arista for Clive. So that was his idea was Clive's idea to do that song, you know, in combination with the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, I think. But, yeah, that was our first. Although, there, you know, we did some videos before that, but, um, yeah, that was the first one that got played on MTV, I think. We did a great video for Demolition Man. I don't know whether you ever saw that. I thought that was a pretty funny video with Steve Waller. Yeah, it was a, it was a nice video. We all dressed in white jumpsuits, and we had a car crashing through the... <laughs> The set at the end, it was it was nice. But the video for Runner is a real classic, mm. early MTV video. Classic, really. Yeah, it was good. I liked it. Shooting star across 
so you've talked about the difficulties or the the fact that you need to hone or practice the art of songwriting yeah and that was something in collaboration with some of the great songwriters that you cracked hugely with you're the voice which is now obviously a, a classic song and, and actually is as more popular than ever yeah it is now, how did that come about well that came about by just the, the three of us myself andy kunter and maggie Ryder, who were all Rondor writers. Rondor were a great publishing company. They sent you off to write. You know, they believed in you and they sent me off to write with all sorts of different people. Not a lot of great collaborations came out of that, but um, you're the voice. We had, we organized, you know, writing sessions and that writing session was done in, in my home studio where I had a grand piano and some synths and a drum machine and I played bass, and so we, you know, Andy played the piano, and we just basically started playing, messing around with some chords, which became the verse, really. And then towards the end of that session, Andy came up with the chorus, I think, I can't, I can't remember. I was just playing the bass, so I was just mm. saying, I like that, I don't like that, yeah, that's good. <laughs> How about this, do this? You know, that's kind of my best, that's my best um, attribute I think with songwriting is pulling the best from other people anyway so I think we we worked for about four or five hours had a rough demo of it because I was recording it on my recorded demo but the lindrum claps I had that before the other two turned up Ah. so I just I pressed I had that programmed so they turned up and we started playing to that so it was something to play to yeah it's a good story this one so we agreed that we would go home and think about melodies and stuff like that. I think I was singing some chorus, mel- uh, some verse melodies. I'm, in fact, I'm sure I was singing some, but we couldn't. We didn't have anything in the in the chorus. So I said, "Well, let's get together in a couple of days." So after they had left, I sat down and played it a few times, and and I just this whoa came up, just came up out of the blue with me. So I, I was just singing, whoa, that sounds, da, 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 da. I like that. And I thought, great. And then the phone rang and Maggie called me and she said, look, I'm on the way home. I've come up with an idea for the chorus. And my heart kind of <laughs> dropped. I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> because, you know, I had this thing. I thought, that's good. Anyway, she said, I'm, I'm coming back to the house. I want to play it to you. So. She came back, put the track on, and she went, da, 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 da. And I went, whoa. <laughs> and that was how that happened. And, you know, that was, I always tell everybody that I think that song wrote itself pretty much, really. It was just a bunch of things that happened. And then I wrote a lyric. Yeah. And we had the title, You're the Voice. and 
I wrote a lyric and it just wasn't as good as the song. I mean, there were some lines that were great, but there were some lines that I called yuck lines, which, because we, you know, it's a, it's kind of a protest song. So it has to be, yeah. has to be right, you know, has to be right. And I didn't think it was, I didn't think the lyric I wrote was as good as the, as the song. So just totally by chance, I was in the studio with uh, Manfred and an engineer called Steve Forward, and he was friends with Keith Reed. And Keith came down to the session, the Manfred Man's Earth Band session, and I just thought, shit, Keith was one of the greatest lyricists. Maybe he can fix the lyric for us. So I said, Keith, do you co-write lyrics? He said, no. And I said, well, look, I've got this lyric. I've got this song with some some words that I think are really good, the idea, this is the title. He said, well, come around and play it to me tomorrow. So I went round to his house and we sat there for, I think, four hours and Keith fixed the yuck lines and came up with some lovely things too. We're all someone's daughter, we're all someone's son. That was one of Keith's. You know, he contributed big time to the lyric, but we kept the title and we kept a lot of the lines that I already had and I think in four hours we had it finished to where it is now. So, you know, it was a bunch of weird things that came together. Maggie coming back was amazing. And then, you know, meeting Keith and riding together, it was great. It seems crazy, given you're an incredible vocalist, that it wasn't a hit, it wasn't released originally for you. Why did it end up with... Great version by John Farnham. Yeah, wonderful version. Was it that it was just difficult for you to get the a deal or something? No, I actually had a deal oh. with um, Doug Morris in um, Atlantic. Was it Atlantic? Yeah, it was on Atlantic. And I was making it, making the record, and I was very enthusiastic about your other voice, sent it to him, and he sent me a message back saying, nobody wants to listen to protest songs anymore. But I'm happy. I'm happy that, you know, because John, you know, brought that song to life. Yeah. You know, it was, it's, it's like the national anthem in Australia and, and, yeah. and a lot of other places. It never was a hit in America. I keep, um, no, wow. I keep hoping that perhaps somebody will cover it one day in, in America. That's a really weird story as well. I'll get to that in a sec. So Doug Morris didn't, didn't want to record it. And um, so that was it. And so John did it. And it was um, it was brilliant. Bagpipes, brilliant. And, you know, really great vocal, fantastic. And um, they released it in America, but they remixed it with uh, Bob Clearmountain, and he just took the claps out, made it doom, ba, doom, ba. And it, it was bored. By the time you got to the chorus, it, everybody turned, moved the radio dial to some other station. So it kind of crept into the charts, and um, but didn't do anything. And then about two years later, I got a call from John's manager, who just died. I can't remember his name, Wheatley. Anyway, he called me and said, they're re-releasing You're the Voice in America because everybody thinks it stands at a really good chance. So I was, yeah, he called me in the middle of the night pretty much, and um, about two days later, I got notification that it was coming out on Friday or something like that. And I suddenly thought, what version are they using? And so I called the record company and said, what version are you using? And they said, what do you mean, what version? We've only got one version of it. I said, no, there's another version. And it was too late. Too late and it didn't happen. Music business story, crazy. 
crazy, but that's, you know, that's, that's the way life is. You have some fantastic ups and you have some horrible downs, but that's just the way it is. Yeah. So we're playing a, a live version that you did with uh, Alan Parsons um, oh, yeah. for the World Liberty concert. How did your uh, work with Alan Parsons um, come about? Well, he just called me and asked me if I'd go on the road with him. So, you know, I loved Alan. Yeah. Lo- loved Alan. Still, still see Alan. And, you know, it was a pleasure for me to go and sing those songs. In fact, we did a live album, and I think that's some of my best singing is on that live album. It really, I don't know, something about those songs and me connected, I was able to really express myself. Songs like Limelight and mm. Eye in the Sky, you know, just uh. just connected with me. So, you know, I, I said, of course, I'd love to go on the road. So we went on the road and a couple of tours and then this World Liberty concert came up to celebrate the end of the Second World War, I think, in Arnhem. And... um so he did a couple of songs and I was just, there was a lot of, Joe Cocker did it, um, can't remember who else, a lot of people with an orchestra, fantastic. And I had to wait around right until the very end. You're the voice was the, was the, the end. It was the last song. So, you know, I was just going crazy. And there was 150,000 people outside going crazy. And I was just stuck in a dressing room trying to, you know, keep up a vibe. Because I'm funny about, you know, if I'm doing a gig, I can't go out and watch what's going on mm. because it, t- it stops being what, well, I don't know, it just takes away from, it just becomes somebody else's gig if I go out and watch it. So I was like stuck in this room, pacing up and down, kicking the walls, trying to stay. You know, I could hear what was going on. I could hear, you know, the crazy crowd and everything like that. And then I went out and and it turned out to be, very successful and it was it was a really lovely end to a to a great concert i think a highlight of your solo shows to this day and and the message of the song is is stronger than ever yeah i think so yeah people love to sing it you know i think they love to sing mighty quinn <laughs> but they also love to sing you're the voice so
more up to date and, and some of your solo work we have woe is me from uh, toys and dishes toys and dishes yeah <laughs> that's a great shift in sound it's, it's got a more earthy blues element was that something that you wanted to sort of reconnect with in terms of your solo work um well i started working with a guitar player and we just got together a couple of times a month and wrote all the songs from that record. Now, Woe Is Me, I don't know how that came about, really. Funny thing about that song, it was written in D major. I really loved the idea of it. I loved the idea. Yeah, I loved the bluesy idea of it. I really loved that. And every time I played it my, to my wife, she went, no, <laughs> because she she also started writing lyrics with me then. She's a really great lyricist. I found out totally by accident because every time I got stuck on a lyric, I'd go in and say, what do you think about this? What could we do with that? She'd come back a few minutes later with something. Anyway, so she'd say to me, no, you can't. No, it sounds cheesy. It, it just doesn't sound, you know, thing about God and all that kind of stuff. And then I was just sitting inside with the guitar and I thought, shit, what would happen if I played it in a minor key? Then it would be more kind of bluesy and more earthy. And so I started playing it at minor key. And she said, yeah, that's much better if you do that. So that's, so that's how that song came about. And it kind of sprung out of I guess it did spring out of my love for the blues really I think if you've played in a played in a nightclub for seven hmm. nights a week 
you get to play some blueses. So, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Reconnected me. You're right. It was earthy and it reconnected me with, you know, guitar, bass and drums really is what I wanted to do. But the other funny thing about that is talk about songwriting, writing the song and the chorus is just like, whoa, da, I'm just singing. Whoa. So, what am I singing? Not the words. And when I started to play it live, I realized I could sing, whoa. Yeah. I could sing Woe Is Me over the chorus. And that is not on the recording. The recording is just me singing. I can't even remember what it is. It's just like, oh, 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 oh. And then I was playing it live and I went, shit, I can sing Woe Is Me. And to this day, <laughs> my wife and I bring it up quite often. We went, how could we be so stupid as to not actually see that? And it's on the record. And, you know, I sing it live now, but it is going to be on with the correct words. It's going to be on the live recording that I'm working on at the moment. Great. So we'll have the correct words on it. But funny things happen. You seem to have, I mean, I guess with, with the passage of time and experience, you seem much more comfortable in yourself in terms of your own songs especially with that album, it's a, a real natural fit. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, I'm happy with the songwriting. They're not really songs that are going to get played on the radio, but people like them when they hear it. I get a lot of comments about the yeah. the record. And, you know, I'm at a stage where I'm 75, so I'm happy to just be writing and playing for myself. Yeah, You know, when I look back on my, when it, we're talking about, I look back on my career, I've had some great successes and and played to some incredible audiences, especially with Alan Parsons over the time and with Mad From Man's Earth Band. Mm. And, um, but, you know, now I'm playing clubs, same clubs as Mad From Man's Earth Band are playing, really, and um, really enjoy Although this is my last year of live. I should have been finished, but COVID came and interrupted it all. But um, I enjoy playing. I've had the same band for 23 years, so it's good. Find God, I'd be a happy man. I look him in the eye, I take him by the hand, I say, Forgive me, Lord, there's something I have to say. Woo, 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 woo. If I can find God, I'd be a happy man. I sing him this song, make him understand. I'm a worried man. Time is slipping away Well, I'm far too old For what I've left to do Wanna give a whole lot of years Right back to you Take all my money Well, that's okay Ain't that right? (laughs) So tell me about it, Lord What must I do? How does a man like me get true to you? I've read the book of Genesis and Revelations too. I read that book. Tell you, I finally found the woman of my dreams. We got two your kids and responsibility. I gotta hold on tight till the way past the teens.
I'm gonna be a happy man I'd sing him this song I'd take him by the hand I'd say, forgive me, Lord There's something I have to say Woo, 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 woo Forgive me, Lord There's something I have to say there's quite a few albums of your career that are worth picking up, but one of them is uh, the Jukebox Ultimate Collection oh, right. <laughs> album that collects a great cross-section of your material, but also gives chance for you to do your own versions of some of the yeah. some of the music that you recorded with Manfred, like for you, but actually your own version in some ways is better <laughs> in that it, it brings out mm. the more mm. emotive element of that song. There's more feeling it than the, the original. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean... That album, it's got that version of Thunderchild with myself and Chris Spedding, which is really, I love it. It's, it's, mm. it's really nice. And um, it's got my version of You're the Voice on it, of course. And, um, and all sorts of things that I've had hanging around for years that I've thought, songs that I really believe in. And, um, yeah, it was nice to put that together, that compilation. It's good. And For You is, a, is another Bruce Springsteen track. But you, you've met Bruce. Yeah, I had a... Um, what do they call that thing in Switzerland that they dip cheese, bread and cheese? Fondue. Fondue, yeah. We went out to dinner for fondue. I've met Bruce a couple of times, but that's the time where we sat down and chewed the fat, so to speak. I asked him if he liked Blinded by the Light, and he he said to me, so uh, what's the name of that band that you got? And I said, Night. She said, yeah, and what's the name of that song? And I said, Hot Summer Night. She said, yeah, I like that one. so he didn't like blinded by the light he didn't like it at all it's funny really because i think at the time blinded by the light came out bruce couldn't record couldn't work live but because he was in that management um and so i think that blinded by the light he should really like it because blinded by the light kept Mm. him able to keep the band together and and um you know had some cash coming in and i think it was a good thing for him it was the first number one that he had with one of his songs. So if it had been me, I would have been pretty happy, I think. But <laughs> he's one of those guys, you know, he, he's got his own, really a lot of his own opinions about stuff. But it was nice to sit there and talk mm. about stuff. It was good. We were there for a couple of hours talking. But he always used to send me tickets when they came to England. He'd always send me oh. tickets to go and see the live shows. I saw so many Bruce Springsteen shows when we were touring in America. We had days off and stuff. I'd find where Bruce is playing, go and see him. I first saw him in, I think, 1975 in Montreal. He was playing just across the road from where we were staying. And uh, I put my coat on and was going to walk across. And the doorman of the hotel said, hey, man, you don't want to go out. It's too cold. I said, well, I'm just going across the street. He said, too cold for you to go across the street. It's minus 24. You can't walk across the street. Cool. Anyway, I did, and I was very happy that I did because it was, I think it was, there was about 700 people in a 1,500-seater show, and that was the first time I saw the E Street Band and him. Unbelievable, really unbelievable. So together, you know, so amazing with the way they you know, the way they played together and the way Bruce was and the way the band was as tight, you know, so tight. Playing clubs, they were played, they played clubs. That's why they were as tight as they were.
princess card she sends me with her regards oh baru my shine vacancy to see her you've gotta look hard wounded deep in battle i stand stuff like some soldier undaunted to her cheshire smile i'll stand on fire She's all I ever wanted You let your blue walls get in the way of this wax, honey Get your carpet baggers off my back Girl, give me time to cover my tracks, you see Where's your mirror and your bowl and jacks? But then on what I came for Relatively to the present, I wanted to close with something that was uh, relatively recent uh, of your solo work. We have uh, Blood on His Hands, oh, yeah. which was released a couple of years ago. And from what I can gather, that, that was your take or your reflection on what's going on in, in the political environment, wasn't it? Well, that was my take on Donald Trump, to be honest. People were so frightened about saying Donald Trump when I tried to do, I had a great guy getting me interviews in America when that first came out because it came out just before the election where he, which he lost. Mm. I thought that people would really cotton on to the idea that, and it came to me because I was watching CNN because the, the situation in America was just crazy. You know, here you've got a leader of the biggest country, one of the biggest countries in the world, not taking COVID seriously. And Thousands upon thousands of people were dying, and he was trying to just not believe that it was something very serious. And 
I had to, I just felt I had to write something to do with it. And that's what came out really. But it was terrible. I mean, people, you know, I tried to get Americans to come and sing on the, you know, to do stuff on the record to try and make it a bit like not we are the world, but try and try and make it something with a lot of different singers and everything. I asked Bruce. Nobody would touch it. Nobody would touch it because it was obvious it was about Donald Trump. And people were frightened that they would lose half their audience by supporting something like that. But I think the song, you know, I think it really captured what I wanted to capture. I wanted it to be raw and tough. And we put it together with all my, you know, my friends from around the world because we couldn't get together in a room. Mm. So what 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 are your plans? You, you mentioned about pulling together the, the live album as well. What, what else have you got on? Well, during the last six years, I think my wife and I have been working on a musical and we've written 24 songs for that and the script. And we have an agency in Germany that um, are going to help us get it out. We put it on just the week before the lockdown. We put it on with some students and it was amazing to see it come to life. It was really incredible. It was at a musical school and um, yeah, it was all dancing. It was choreographed and produced and it was just amazing to see it. But there were some problems with it, which is why we put it on to see, you know, yeah. what happened. So we spent the two years, the lockdown years, rewriting the script and writing a couple of new songs. So, that you know, that's looking forward because musicals, it's very, very difficult. It's very difficult. Mm. But I believe in the music and I believe in the story and I believe in the script. It's an original story. It's it's from an idea I had, which is developed over many, many years and kind of been, you know, taken on by one of the writers from the agency and my wife and we, we wrote the script. So that's, um, you know, that's I'm looking to the future for that and hoping that we can get that on. I'm doing another um, solo record, my last one, I think. Yeah. And that's a kind of a eclectic, yeah, record full of stories really about about bits and pieces of my life. So I'm excited about that. But that's on hold at the moment because I'm trying to finish this live thing. I mean, it sounds stupid. We recorded it in just before the lockdown. But I need the band to come and do a few repairs. Yeah. <laughs> and they haven't been able to come. So the guitar player's coming next week and we'll, you know, we're not re-recording it. We're just yeah. fixing little bits and pieces as you do with a live record. So I'm excited about that. And it represents the band. It will really represent the band and our versions of all sorts of things. So that's what I'm doing. That's great to hear, Chris. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> the music that you, you've made over the last almost 50 years is it's just brilliant and it, it's great to know that there's more coming out. Thank you so much for your time. No, I've been I've been very lucky to have, you know, done what I've done. And um yeah, I can look back and and feel very, very happy about a lot of things. I feel unhappy about a lot of things too, but <laughs> I think I think in general I feel um, yeah. But if you have, if you get a chance to find that Alan Parsons live record, have a listen to that because I think it's a real special special record. That's great to know. But thank you, my pleasure. Bye. Bye. Blood on the 
for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast 
and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.